According to ACOG's Committee Opinion 773 from 2019, quote, Currently, serum antimalarian hormone levels are not part of the accepted diagnostic criteria for polycystic ovarian syndrome, end quote. But medicine moves fast, and that statement is no longer valid. At least that's the opinion from ASRM's July 2023 standpoint. Yep, once considered experimental, antimalurian hormone has now entered the PCOS diagnostic algorithm. Nonetheless, some important limitations and facts have to be understood for its use in this way. In this episode, we will highlight these recommendations from the 2023 International Evidence-Based Guideline for the Assessment and Management of PCOS, and we're going to focus on the role of AMH, antimalurian hormone. We'll also discuss the condition in adolescence and why this diagnosis is totally different in that group. And the update also states that there's changes to the follicle number per ovary that we should be looking at. We're going to discuss that in this episode. This guideline has been co-published in Fertility and Sterility, Human Reproduction, the European Journal of Endocrinology, and the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. We've got lots to cover, so let's get into AMH in PCOS diagnosis right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Congrats, you're breaking so many records lately. Hold on, I got a whole list. I got to run it down. Okay, you're the longest charting female artist in the history of Billboard Hot Country and Billboard Dance Electronic with the most overall weeks spent at number one. I can't even comprehend that. At number one. How do you do that? And how do you feel? You're beautiful, honey. Let's be clear. But I know this is something important to you and you wanted to address yeah. it and, and you did on your social. Oh, my, on my Twitter. Because I was on like TikTok, whatever, just looking at videos and then a video of me popped up. And I was like, let me read the comments, which you're not supposed to, that's the number one rule, don't read the comments. But I was like, let me read the comments. And the first thing up top was BB Rex Awakening. And I was like, like, we're in, it it just, listen, we're in the public eye, so that's bound to happen, especially like I was a lot thinner and I did gain some weight. But it just, it's, so that comes with the territory, you know, like I'm not mad about it because it is true, but it just, when you see things like that, it does mess with your, because you don't know what somebody's going through. Like you don't know like what what like what they're going through in their life, right. so it kind of is tough. But I feel like we're in 2023. Like we should not be talking about people's weight. You know, it's like right. listen, a girl like I like to eat. Okay, I like to eat. And ain't nothing wrong with that. I like to eat. And. I um I went to I went to the doctor like last year and I, and a lot of women actually have this and they don't know about it but I they um, diagnosed me with PCOS which is polycystic ovary syndrome and it's one of the it's one of the leading causes of why women um, gain weight and are mm-hmm. obese mm-hmm. and it's like I I literally jumped like thirty pounds like so quickly you know what I mean I mean maybe a little bit more but um but yeah we gotta just be positive yeah. and just show people love and just. Yeah. Like, yeah. you better stop 
Stand up and let them see. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, uh, even though I hate, well, I don't hate it. I just really don't like doing recordings on the fly and on the move. Uh, sometimes I've got to fit it into the schedule somehow. The best is to do it in our studio. I have a, There's a little podcast recording area at our Health Science Center, and I've got a podcast area uh, at home that's all decked out. Super nice. It's kind of like my little recording cave. Sometimes I don't even record. I just go in there and I tell everyone, hey, I'm recording. Le- leave me alone. And, and they buy it. Of course, now they've probably heard this now. They're going to keep checking on me to see if I'm actually recording. But it's my little sanctuary and it works. But if I don't carve out time uh, in the day and actually do it when I have uh, downtime, then I stay up. Guys, sometimes I do. I knock out podcasts like midnight, two in the morning. Please don't send me stuff about healthy work-life balance. I'm working on it. I get it. And to be honest, I know this is super weird. Um, Sometimes recording actually uh, is a way to, to calm me down and 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 it, it brings me enjoyment. I like to do it. Uh, and I also have to see time with the family. I've got to see patients. I've got the medical students. I've got the residents. You know, blah, blah, blah. All to say I'm not in the studio right now, although I plan to finish this later on uh, this evening in studio. But right now I'm in my office because uh, I just got to knock out some of this stuff. Plus, I find it super interesting. So, uh, of course, as always, if I've said before, if you pick up some weird conversations in the hallway, we'll try to edit that out, but sometimes you can't. But anyway, all to say, I'm in my office right now in between downtime because we had a cancellation. So I'm like, mm, bam, Mike comes out and I close the door and I told everybody I'm recording. Don't bother me until my patient gets here. So we'll see how far this goes. But back to what we're talking about, which is PCOS. Man, what a journey this little health gynecological condition has had, right? I mean, from going from Stein and Leventhal back in the 1930s, 1935, when they first kind of documented their thing, and we've, we've mentioned this in previous episodes, uh, to calling it Stein and Leventhal syndrome, to now polycystic ovarian disease, and then it went to PCOS, which is where we're at now. And some are advocating a, even a new name, which is the hyperandrogen metabolic syndrome, because PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, that name is already wrong, right? Yes, it's a syndrome. That's the good part. The S is right. But some may not have polycystic ovaries. And based on some patients' ages, like adolescents, PCOM, polycystic ovarian morphology, may be a normal variant as their body is still figuring out the postpubertal changes from the hypothalamus pituitary ovarian axis. So the PCO is kind of jacked. The S is correct, but it doesn't take into account any of the other stuff like insulin resistance, the metabolic effects. So all to say, thankfully glad we don't call it uh, Stein and Leventhal anymore. That's that's good. That's that's a good move. Uh, thankfully, we don't call it polycystic ovarian disease because it's not a disease. It's a clinical entity. 
But until the name changes, we are kind of stuck with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And we've covered PCOS in past episodes from a variety of angles, right? We've covered pregnancy implications, its infertility issues, the four clinical phenotypes of this condition. We've covered this in in various forms, including nutritional impacts to this, like uh, myo-inositol, all right? Now, I'll be very clear because I received a lot of questions about myo-inositol. Myo-inositol is not like the de facto single golden goose. It's not the cure-all, be-all, but it can definitely help. Uh, it can't hurt. It can help with some of the metabolic issues. And even ASRM says, hey, it, it's legit. If some patients want to do that instead of a true, you know, quote, unquote medication like metformin, which has much more data, obviously, but it's got some GI side effects. It's got some expense issues. Uh, this is a, an alternative for those who want to go that route. All right. So we've learned a lot about this. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, about myo-inositol, you got to go back and listen to that episode because there's a lot of pretty cool data out there on that as well. Again, but as I tell patients, hey, this is not a, a cure-all, right? This is not a, a huge medication that's going to fix everything overnight. It's a supplement that works at the ovarian level to fix the myo-inositol, de-inositol mismatch that's very well studied in biochemistry, and that is absolutely not what we're talking about in this episode, right? All, the only reason I brought that up is just to remind us that we've covered this in various forms in the past. Okay. It is very cool how we keep learning more and more about this condition and its metabolic effects and even its diagnosis. I mean, my goodness, how long have we had the Rotterdam criteria? We've had it for decades. We've had it for a long, long time. And no, 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 Rotterdam is not going away. It's still a thing, but it has been expanded or further explained if you'd rather think of it that way. And, and I like the new guidelines that very clearly state, hey, the Rotterdam criteria, as a reminder, is only for adults. That was never meant to be applied to adolescents, and we're going to explain why in this episode. But it makes the point that we keep learning so much about this metabolic endocrine gynecological condition. And so I'm glad that ASRM did this update in July 2023. We're going to cover all of this. We're going to focus on the ultrasound diagnosis for ovarian morphology, who should get that, who shouldn't get that. Of course, we're going to talk about AMH. That's the focus here. We're going to talk about the diagnosis conundrum in adolescent patients, but we're going to make it very clear so it's not confusing. Uh, And we're going to be very, very succinct in a very quick rule of thumb clinical bedside diagnostic algorithm so you can figure out who likely has PCOS or not in a super easy way and who and when AMH can be done. Wow, that's a lot of stuff, right? So there's a lot of stuff in this in this guideline, uh, and we're, the purpose of doing this episode is to make it super easy, super clinically applicable, know the limitations of AMH because it's not for everybody, know who should really be looking at ovarian morphology, uh, and, and why the number, the minimum number count of little follicles in the ovary, why that has changed from the past. We're going to cover all of this, right? It's a great lead-in. As always, you know how we do things here on the show. We just try to lay out the full path, kind of give an overall outline, and then we're going to go through each one of these things in much more detail. 
Yes, Rotterdam criteria is still legit. It's still a thing. It's still the most widely used clinical criteria for PCOS. So let's briefly go over what that is, okay? Because remember, you need two or more of these things. Well, there's only three, so it's either two of those or all of them. <laughs> I like how some things you read, it's two or more, and there's only three. Um, so just say more than or equal to two. Wouldn't that be easier? Anyway, remember that the three kind of categories for PCOS, of which you need two to establish the diagnosis, and it's any two. The first is irregular periods, uh, typically means few and uh, far between, okay? So periods of the old term oligoamenorrhea or amenorrhea, all right? So irregular periods. Second is either clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism. Now, when we get into the bedside quick rule of thumb, the, the three different ways of which PCOS can be diagnosed clinically at the bedside, uh, this is going to make sense in a minute. So it's clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism. By the way, you all know this. This is nothing new, right? Irregular periods or clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism. And then the third is polycystic ovarian morphology on ultrasound, PCOM, okay? Any two of those three is like, hey, clinically, you meet the diagnosis of PCOS. That's it. The, the major feature for PCOS diagnosis in the adult is the presence of PCOM morphology at ultrasound. But, but even that is controversial because remember, as we said before, that there's different phenotypes and the patient can come in and out of different phenotypes at different stages of her life. So it's totally possible that she has irregular periods, clinical hyperandrogenism or biochemical, and absent polycystic ovarian morphology on ultrasound. That is possible. But if you're ever asked which one has the most specificity, well, the most specificity is definitely polycystic ovarian morphology in the adult patient. Okay, so don't forget, it's two of those three things, uh, but this applies only to adults. Rotterdam was not meant to be used in adolescence. But here's the issue, that the interpretation of this polycystic ovarian morphology can be kind of subjective, uh, but thankfully now, as ultrasound transducers have gotten to be so high resolution, I mean, you can see so well, unless you're using an older machine, that we can now see these little follicles so much better, and you can change the depth of penetration, you can change the resolution, that ASRM has now said that the FNPO, Okay, what is FNPO, guys? That is the follicle number per ovary. So remember that FNPO is part of the PCOM. The follicle number per ovary helps dictate the polycystic ovarian morphology, all right? So in the past, it, we've always said that it was 12 or more follicles around the periphery with a kind of a dense or a... a, a, a homogeneous core, right? And that's still legit. But that number has now changed from 12 to 20. So that's one of the clinical pearls. What did this new 2023 guidance say for PCOS? Morphology, it's number one. Remember that the standard is still transvaginal ultrasound. You got to do transvaginal. And if for whatever reason the patient doesn't want it, obviously don't force her, do transabdominal. But because of the limited uh, ability of transabdominal ultrasound, to see the ovary well, then you don't have to use the, the 20 FNPO. You can stick with a 10 or 12 number of follicles in the periphery because of the lack of sensitivity, lack of penetration, lack of resolution of transabdominal ultrasound, unless the patient is like super ultra thin, 
All right. So the gold standard, of course, for assessing the ovaries is transvaginal ultrasound. You can do transabdominal if necessary, uh, knowing that this number, the FNPO of 20, which is the update because it used to be 12, uh, only has to do or applies to transvaginal ultrasound. So this is nothing new for 2023. It was first proposed in 2018 uh, and and pretty much accepted back then. But it's now, uh, again, been endorsed and preferred that 20 FNPO, which helps describe polycystic ovarian morphology, that that be the number. So if you're asked how many little follicles do you need, then it should really be 20 based on the newer machines, which now brings another point is that, look, guys, we need to talk to our radiologists, talk to your ultrasound tech that please just don't have them say, oh, this, the, the ovaries appear polycystic. Well, what does that mean? I mean, this has to be traditionally around the periphery. Um, uh, I mean, it can't be like, is it hyperstimulation? Is that what we're talking about? Where it just looks like a bunch of cysts out of control? Uh, or this peripherally oriented in the periphery with a central cortex? That's really what PCOS traditionally has been defined as now moving that number of, of follicles per ovary from 12 to 20. There needs to be a uniform way of describing this, just like there needs to be a, a standardized universal way of describing ovarian cysts, which we talked about in our past podcast with the ORADS nomenclature, the ORADS system. But saying, oh, the, the ovaries appear polycystic, probably not good enough. It's better to say it meets ASRM criteria. I see X number of follicles, suspicious of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So it, we've got to be better at describing what we're seeing ultrasonographically. See, this is one of the issues of using ultrasound, which is super, super customary for gynecology, obstetrics. That's our thing, right? That's our go-to test. Uh, but ask an ultrasound tech or ask any gynecologist, and how, how, do you, are you comfortable looking for polycystic ovaries? They're like, dude, of course. I mean, hello, ask me something difficult. I know what that is. But then you ask them something specific, like, well, what is the FNPO? And then you usually get back the what? The FNPO, the follicle number per ovary. What number is it? I don't know. There's a bunch of, oh, bunch of cysts on the ovary. No, no, no. It's got to be uniform. And, and this is why, while you know, I, I'm all for doing a pelvic ultrasound for sure in patients who have irregular periods, because I just want to make sure that there's nothing else freaky in there. That's totally fine. But unless you have that uniform interpretation, it can get confusing. This is why, even back in 2018, that previous ASRM guideline stated, quote, we endorse the Rotterdam PCOS diagnostic criteria in adults, which is two of the following, irregular menstruation, clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism, or polycystic ovaries on ultrasound after the exclusion of related disorders. Okay, we get that. That's not surprising. But here's what they go on to say back in 2018, and it's still in this new 2023 guidance. Here's what they say. When both irregular menstruation, uh, defined as uh, oligo or anovulation, and hyperandrogenism are present, ultrasound is not necessary for the diagnosis. See, so if you see a patient, and that's what we're going to talk about in a minute, that quick bedside assessment, that rule of thumb, is that, look, if they're like, hey, I get periods like super weird, or I don't know what's going on, I get one, one month, I get, then I go three months and I get another one, and then it's four weeks, it's super irregular, and then you're looking at her and she's got acanthosis, uh, male pattern, uh, you know, hair growth on, the, on her chin or on her upper lip, 
Um, give her the diagnosis. I mean, darn, you don't have to go, well, let me get the ultra, let me see if your ovaries are polycystic. There's already, you've already made the diagnosis clinically. I can walk into a room when I walk in and, and my uh, MA says, you're going to go in there. She hasn't had a bunch of, she hasn't had periods in a while. She has a bunch of irregular cycles. And I walk in and, and I, and I, she's got clinical evidence of hyperandrogenism. I'm like, oh, I think I, I, I think I know what's going on. We have to exclude other things, including thyroid abnormalities, prolactin issues, make sure there's no weird cortisol thing. I make sure it's not medication induced, of course, but it's, it's not a hard diagnosis, guys. We rely so much on ultrasound. Uh, and it's okay to get an ultrasound, but don't necessarily rely on it when the diagnosis is super clear. So that is what ASRM said back in 2018 and still says in 2023. Okay, so everybody good? So if it is super obvious, and that's one of the clinical bedside tools, irregular periods plus clinical hyperandrogenism, you're pretty much done as long as you've excluded other causes. Thyroid issues, prolactin, cushion issues, med-induced issues. Make sure that you're not mistaking genetic or familial hypertrichosis with uh, hirsutism. Those are different, right? You remember that some races are just a little bit hairier than others. It's okay. Don't get mad at me for saying it. It's the truth. Uh, and who has less body hair traditionally based on genetics because of 5-alpha reductase distribution? Asian, who's a little bit hairier? Uh, Hispanic, Mediterranean, uh, that's just the thing. So there are ethnic differences. That's one of the complaints of Fairman Galway. The hirsutism scale is that that was based on Caucasians. Well, you give uh, that Fairman Galway scale to an Asian patient and it's going to be off. You give that to a um, Mediterranean patient and it may be totally off and it not be pathologic. That's familial because of the differences in 5-alpha reductase. All right. So as long as you've excluded those other familial medication, other endocrine issues, if they have irregular periods and clinical hyperandrogenism, you're, you're kind of done. Not that getting an ultrasound is wrong. I want to be very clear. I think you should get an ultrasound to make sure nothing else is going on, but don't rely on it if the diagnosis is already made and give the patient that information. Okay, so that's Rotterdam. Again, that's why I said, you see how the three criteria never went away. It's still a thing. It's just kind of changed the way that we're using it. It's been now further described. It's been further uh, explained. I don't know. What else? What, further what? Uh, characterized? I don't know. This, it's been further. It's been modified, let's just say, to be much more forgiving, a little bit more loosey-goosey. All right. So Rotterdam, yes, it's still a thing. Just know its limitations. And when clinically, you may not even need to look for polycystic ovarian morphology. Okay. All right. So that's that. Now they go on to say a specific caveat uh, for adolescent patients, because in adolescence, this is a little different. Remember, as a clinical pearl, Rotterdam wasn't really supposed to apply to adolescents because they got a bunch of other stuff going on. They may have, uh, you know, acne because of adolescence, and you you don't want to interpret that as hyperandrogenism. Uh, they have irregular periods because it can take uh, anywhere from one to three years after menarche for their period to figure itself out. So you don't want to overcall it. So Rotterdam in the adolescent patient here it is, guys. Very easy can overmake the diagnosis. So we have to be careful of that. So ASRM says, quote, in the adolescent patients, both irregular periods and hyperandrogenism should be required for the diagnosis. I mean, we need to have some bar. So irregular periods and hyperandrogenism, either clinical or biochemical, that's the way to go. Don't do ultrasound for diagnosis because it can overcall it. 
Okay, so let me read you uh, one of their quotes here in just a minute. But just to be very clear, Rotterdam and ovarian morphology for PCOS does not apply at all for the adolescent patient. The Rotterdam criteria should be considered only for adults and not for adolescents and in otherwise healthy juveniles, that's what I'm reading the text right now, who have a concern for polycystic ovarian syndrome. So what do we tell these patients who are under 18, in other words, true adolescents, when they present with clinical hyperandrogenism and irregular periods? We tell them, look, we suspect that there's this condition that you more likely you're going to have. We're calling you at risk of PCOS. But right now, we don't want to overcall that diagnosis because it can, it, honestly, here's what the, the guideline says. We can freak them out. They think they're never going to get pregnant. They think that there's something totally wrong. And so this is the balance. Listen to this, guys, how, how difficult this is and why it's a conundrum in adolescence. We don't want to overcall it and really freak them out. At the same time, we don't want to water it down and say, ah, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. And we miss the potential education on the metabolic aspects of this and healthy lifestyle interventions, which includes weight reduction, maybe inositol, uh, myonositol, and these kind of things, increase in exercise. Does that make sense? So you see that. That's why it's a conundrum in the adolescence. You're like, we can't ignore it. And at the same time, we don't want to freak you out and get a diagnosis that may not really pan out later on because adolescence has its own set of issues. Okay. So to be very clear, Rotterdam is for adults. In the adolescent, if they have irregular periods and hyperandrogenism, either clinically or biochemical, then you can call them at risk. They are PCOS-like. They are PCOS-ish, okay? Uh, because the criteria by itself doesn't really fit Rotterdam, although you can give them the preliminary diagnosis of PCOS, but we don't want to overdiagnose. Difficult, right? Now, here's the other catch, and here's why it's super complicated. Follow me with this, okay? What do you think that adolescent patient, let's say she's 15, 16, uh, and somebody diagnosed her with at-risk of PCOS, what is she most likely going to get? Birth control pills, right? Uh, uh, duh. And so you give them birth control pills, uh, and, and that issue, the question, it's unknown. If those who do not have ovarian morphology, if they were checked then, uh, and then get birth control, how many of those does that prevent the polycystic ovarian morphology? There's not good data about that. So we don't even know what that progression is. There's some hints of what's going on, but there's a lot of individual variances, okay? So see how complicated this is. So short to say, Rotterdam, the two out of the three clinical issues is for adults. In adolescence, you can say they're at risk of PCOS or just call it an endocrine abnormality, suspicious for or at risk for the condition in adulthood if they have irregular periods and clinical hyperandrogenism. This whole issue of the difficulty with the PCOS diagnosis, we don't want to water it down, we don't want to overcall it, in the adolescent patient was written about and discussed in, in a commentary and evidence review in the journal Clinical Medicine from February of this year, 2023. That author is Mekazalski. Uh, yeah, um, let me just spell it for you because I think I'm going to butcher that if I try that again. It is M-E-C-Z-E. K-A-L-S-K-I, Mekazalski. Of course, I'm just put this reference on our reference list, uh, but it did come out this year, February 2023. 
As these authors write, quote, the Rotterdam criteria should be considered inappropriate for adolescent girls as well as other healthy juveniles because they have polycystic ovarian morphology in the years post-menarche that is not linked to future PCOS diagnosis. End quote. So, and that's one of the issues. If you do an ultrasound in a patient with irregular periods who's 16, they may have PCOM. It doesn't mean that they have PCOS. So uh, it is very difficult in the adolescence. You don't want to ignore it. You don't want to overcall it. Boy, have I like kicked this dead horse more than we should have. I think we've, we've kind of settled that, right? So remember, it's for adults, adolescents. Don't overcall it. Don't undercall it. Give them information. You can get an ultrasound to rule out other stuff, especially if they have virilization. That's totally different. You got to make sure they don't have a adrenal secreting ovarian tumor, but that's a different issue. That's virilization over hirsutism. Okay, I think we've kind of just put this thing into the ground. I mean, I think we've already made the point. I think it's well taken about the limitations of diagnosing this in an adolescent. Again, that's defined as those under 18. But I just want to leave you with this one other quote from uh, another commentary that was released just a year ago, August of 2022, in the journal Diagnostics. Okay, The title of this publication is Diagnosis of Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome During Adolescence, a Literature Review. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? So this is a hot topic now. Notice this was August of 2022, just over a year ago. Because we again, it's a, it's a very tough thing for any women's healthcare provider. You don't want to let a patient go with the wrong diagnosis. You definitely don't want to overcall somebody. It really is tricky. But let's just give you this one last quote, and then we'll move on because I think we've made made this point on various levels. So Pena et al. from August 2022 states, "Quote: This evaluation in adolescence should avoid overdiagnosis that would cause unnecessary concern about future fertility." or other complications. At the same time, we should highlight the need for follow-up of all adolescents who are considered at risk of PCOS diagnosis based on Radadam criteria later on in their life, end quote. Perfectly stated. We've already said that, and I think we've made our point here, so let's leave that there for a while, and let's keep moving forward. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, I'm back. Just in the interim, just so you know, I've seen patients and I'm in another lull. So I'm knocking this out before you say, man, shouldn't you be seeing patients? I already did. So now I'm back. All right. So very quickly, um, look, it's the end of the semester and I have a university affiliated office as one of my locations. And so it's very sporadic. So in the meantime, rather than 
doing other stuff, which I've already done on my emails, already done my resident charts, I'm knocking this out. So hopefully I don't do it at 9 or 10 p.m. tonight. All right, so we already talked about quickly about diagnosis, but now I want to just talk about those rule of thumb, the very quick bedside assessments for PCOS diagnosis, not getting rid of Rotterdam at all, using Rotterdam in a super easy way. Okay, this is in the 2023 guideline, so I want to cover this super quick before we get into antimalurian hormone because no, I have not forgotten about that. I know we're still going to talk about that, okay? So here's how this all goes down. You're seeing a patient, like we've already mentioned in uh, our previous little discussion, and she comes in, she has irregular cycles, she's got clinical hyperandrogenism, boom, that's it. You're like, I'm good. I'm going to exclude other causes like thyroid, the prolactin, blah, blah, blah. We've already said that. And then you've already sealed the diagnosis because that's two out of three Rotterdam. Super easy. The second possibility is that there's irregular cycles, but no clinical hyperandrogenism. Well, if there's no clinical hyperandrogenism in a patient who you suspect has the condition, ASRM says, yeah, just go ahead and test for biochemical hyperandrogenism, excluding other causes. And if it's high, then you've got the diagnosis there. Remember, it's clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism. None of that info should be mind-blowing to anyone. That's basic Rotterdam. Uh, and that's, again, in the 2023 July guidance. The third possibility is that you see a patient who only has irregular periods or only has hyperandrogenism, whether clinical or biochemical. So if she only has one of the three Rotterdam issues, remember this is in an adult, then you're like, I got to get that ultrasound for sure because I've got to see VF polycystic ovarian morphology, which gets you the two of the three, and then you get the diagnosis, all right? So the first one is, uh, first possibility is irregular cycles and clinical hyperandrogenism. That's enough for the diagnosis. Then the other scenario is no clinical hyperandrogenism, but there's irregular cycles, well then do blood work. And if that gives you the diagnosis, then you're done. You probably don't need an ultrasound. Or if there's only irregular cycles or only hyperandrogenism, then you need more info, of course. And that's where the ovarian ultrasound for PCOM morphology comes in. All right. And remember, as we've already wrapped this up and said this many times, that adolescence Adolescents, you can get an ultrasound for other reasons, but don't bank on polycystic ovarian morphology in adolescence because you can likely overcall the diagnosis in that population. All right, let's see. What have we done here? We've talked about FNPO, follicle number per ovary, which is a part of PCOM, polycystic ovarian morphology. We've talked about uh, how the Rotterdam criteria looks at the bedside. We've talked about that. We've talked about adolescence. And remember the big clinical pearl that there is no definitive criteria to define polycystic ovarian morphology based on ultrasound in adolescence. Woo, we've covered a lot. So the last thing is AMH. That's really what I wanted to talk about, but the other stuff was really, really good and really helpful clinical info, so we put that out there. Okay, so now let's get into antimylurian hormone and where that fits into PCOS algorithm, which I think is remarkable. Remember, 2018, the statement was, it's not a thing, don't worry about it, it's not validated, move on. Wow. And all that to say now in 2023 is like, yeah, it's legit with some caveats. 
So please remember that, that there are some, some limitations and some facts that we have to keep in mind for AMH, which is why, let me say this as commentary only, this is CHOPPA perspective. I don't know if this is really going to take off or not. For those who don't have ultrasound ability, uh, in the adult population who are considering this, I think that's valid, all right? And that's and so does ASRM. But in the general population um, where ultrasound is so readily available, I, I don't know if, if AMH is going to add a lot of value because, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead now, but let me just lay this out right now. ASRM, to be very clear, says, I want you to do one or the other. Don't get an ultrasound and then you find polycystic ovarian morphology in an adult and then get an AMH to confirm that. You don't need that uh, because now it's going to confuse the issue. So to be clear, and I'm going to give you the steps here, the, the, the strict rules on this uh, and the limitations for AMH based on the guidance, but they say it's one or the other in the adult, all right? But again, there's a lot of things to consider here. There's a lot of caveats, so I want to get into that coming up now. First, remember what AMH is, antimalurian hormone. Remember that this has a role even in organogenesis as antimalurian hormone. It's got a role there. Uh, And of course, it has a role in fertility determination for ovarian reserve. But here we're talking about it specifically in terms of PCOM and PCOS diagnosis and the algorithm, okay? So the idea is if this is made by follicles, this is made by granulosa cells, uh, so it makes sense, it would follow that in those who have more follicles, you're going to have more AMH. So the first thing to consider is, wait, is AMH, are we saying it's going up or going down with PCOS? Well, it'd be going up. It's higher than the average who doesn't have the situation clinically because they have more follicles, right? So this is, again, this is a measure of, of ovarian reserve in the infertility world. And here, if it's elevated, and I'll tell you what that number is in a minute, that could suggest the diagnosis of PCOS in the appropriate algorithm. Now, having said that, here's the big clinical pearl, and it's also very well spelled out in the guideline. AMH is not to be used by itself. It's not a standalone test. It's just another tool, another piece of information in the clinical evaluation of patients who you suspect have this condition. And remember, for adults, all right? But even that has a little caveat. I'm going to say it here in just a minute. Okay, so remember 2018, the guidance said it, it's, it's just not really validated. It should not be used as an alternative for the formal diagnosis of polycystic ovarian morphology. Just stick with the ultrasound. But that is totally reversed as of 2023 in July. The international team now recognizes that, quote, Serum antimalurian hormone, AMH, could be used for defining PCOM in adults, end quote. And again, that's a huge change from 2018. Huge, huge, huge change. Nevertheless, there are some things that have to be clarified about AMH here in this diagnostic algorithm. Okay, so here it is. Let's just get these done one after the other. First, if the patient presents with irregular cycles and hyperandrogenism already, why are you going to get an antimalurian hormone? Don't worry about it. They already meet two of the three of Rotterdam. Seal the diagnosis. Just like you wouldn't get an ultrasound for them just to look for, at the uh, ovarian uh, follicle structure. You can get an ultrasound look for other things. But in that case, you've already made the diagnosis because they have two of the three of Rotterdam. All right? So if it's very clear from a clinical standpoint, 
please don't get an AMH, and that's ASRM's stance. They also point out here that AMH or ultrasound can help to make the diagnosis for polycystic ovarian morphology. Because if your AMH, it's high, if you've got higher levels of antimalarian hormone, that is typically coming from a lot of, of follicles on the ovary. And so by, by surrogate check, you don't have to do the ultrasound, one or the other. Does that make sense? To be very clear, the guidance says do not perform both together, one or the other. Now that we've said that and we're getting ready to wrap up this episode, there's some clinical pearls here about the limitations of this test, all right? And two big ones, and then we're going to go through other, other scenarios. The first one, and we've already said this, is that serum antimalurian hormone, AMH, should not be used as a single test for the diagnosis of PCOS. It's part of that clinical algorithm that we've already discussed. And the second that we've already said also is that AMH should also not be used in adolescence. So not to be used in those under 18 and not to be used as a standalone test by itself. That makes a lot of sense. Again, not mind-blowing there. Now that we've done those two clinical pearls, here's some other little scenarios slash facts that we all need to keep in mind as we get ready to wrap this up. First is the patient's age. Serum AMH generally peaks around the ages of 20 to 25, and so that's one of the issues. Even though this, you can use this in adults, 20 to 25, you're going to be at that upper end of normal, so be cautious with that. That's probably the age range where you want to use ultrasound when it's indicated over this, okay? is interesting, right? So 18 to 20, you're good. Over 25, you're good. 20 to 25, um, maybe can get artificially high. So that's one of the caveats. The second is that there's BMI issues with this. So serum AMH, according to ASRM, is lower in those who have higher BMIs. That possibly could be a volume of distribution issue. It's not real clear. But even in those who have polycystic ovarian morphology and the syndrome based on clinical features, when they actually check their levels of antimalarian hormone, this kind of doesn't work well, all right? So in those who have BMIs that are above 30, so obese, well, see how why he said, I don't know how clinically applicable this is going to be because, well, a lot of patients with PCOS have obesity. So that's one of the caveats, all right? So age is an issue, 20 to 25 could be artificially high. BMI is an issue because it could be artificially lower, so you could miss it. Those are the ones where you typically want to stick with the ultrasound. Thirdly, and this other category is that remember that patients who are on hormonal contraceptives or have had some kind of ovarian surgery, well, their AMA is going to be artificially suppressed, okay? Because that's what birth control does. It keeps the follicles from developing. Hello. So if they're on OCPs, or if they have had some kind of ovarian surgery, wedge resection, ovarian drilling, if some people still do that, I know it's out there, it's still legit, it's just kind of on the fringe, because there's other issues involved with that, but it's totally fine to do, if that's your thing, do it, just do it correctly in the appropriate patient, um, that could artificially lower AMH, all right? So those are, are, are really the, the big caveats here. Number one, it's not a standalone test. Two, it's not used for adolescence. 
next is 20 to 25. Got to watch those peaks. Watch BMIs because it could be artificially lower. If they're on birth control pills or have had ovarian surgery, AMH is going to be artificially suppressed. And then the last possibility that's under more investigation is hmm, does AMH actually fluctuate throughout the menstrual cycle? It seems that there's some variance, but it's still not enough to be clinically significant, but that's still in development. Even though we don't know that, ASRM says, hey, in in some patients where they don't have ultrasound ability and you really do suspect PCOS, but they only have one clinical feature and you need that, that other assessment of the ovarian function and you don't have ultrasound, so PCOM is not an option, then consider AMH with those clinical uh, limitations and precautions, okay? So if, if you're thinking, well, I don't know, it's a lot of, it's like a lot of work to think about with AMH. It is. I get that. And that's why it's not a standalone test. That's why it fits into the algorithm. But remember, I like this because some locations, guys, don't have ultrasound ability. We get super, super uh, spoil that. I mean, we have an ultrasound in all of our offices with a tech and the machine is like super high res. It's 3D. It's good. That's not everybody. And if you're a solo practitioner in a rural practice, I mean, you got to send that that patient out and they may not have that resource, may not have coverage. So there is a role for this. But again, it's not for everyone and it's not to be used with ultrasound. It's one or the other. And the last thing that we're going to cover here, guys, is what seems to be an abnormal upper limit. Well, based on some people, they say 3.8 nanograms per ml, although the majority of of data suggests using a cutoff of 5. All right, so the upper limit uh, of of normal is 5. So anything greater than 5 would be considered an elevated AMH which again would support the diagnosis of multiple follicles on the ovary, all right? So based on some reads, 3.8, the majority of people use 5 nanograms per ml. Well, hard to believe, but I actually completed this episode in my office with my portable mic, not in the studio, and there were some people talking in the hallway. I'm not sure if you heard that, but don't worry. It's not HIPAA. They weren't talking about patient stuff because they were like telling some jokes or something because we were in a lull. Uh, So thankfully, in a lull, we get some other work done, like getting this up and out. We're going to edit it, and hopefully we'll get that out uh, late this evening on the 14th, which is Thursday when we're recording this, or at latest, if Mike can do it, if we can't get it out tonight, we'll put it out tomorrow morning. Um, thanks for always reaching out. Thanks for your encouragement. Thanks for sending me your uh, your experiences. I had somebody reach out and said, you're not going to believe it. I just delivered a 22-year-old patient who's a prima gravida, uh, no previous uterine surgery, uh, who had a manual placental extraction. Uh, and then through an MRI, short of it, she got an MRI and found that she had a fundal accreta. Did y'all get that 22-year-old, primogravida, no uterine surgery, had an accreta at the fundus? Y'all, that was our previous podcast episode. Wow. Is that blow your mind or what? So the point is, if you ever hear something and you're like, I don't know if I want to listen to that, it's so esoteric, super rare. No, we do this because that stuff is out there. So this podcast family member sent me that message and said, man... I don't know what happened, how this works, but you talked about this thing. You must have put out some bad juju out there because I've, this happened to us like recently. Uh, so one, I'm not claiming bad juju. Uh, so I'm waving my hands around to get rid of the bad juju. That makes me want to buy some sage and burn it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad. What is the coincidence of that, guys? Can you imagine? 
uh, he just hurt, you know, we did that episode, what, I don't know, one, two weeks ago, maybe three, they all run together, I don't know. But then this podcast family member actually had the situation. So, but because we, you know, we had talked about it, his physician obviously knew what he was looking for, had a quick diagnosis, and honestly came up with a great evidence-based plan, likely saved her life. So, crazy. So, that made me super happy that this podcast seems to have some clinical utility. Thank you all for your messages. Thanks for all for, uh, for reaching out and, and the encouragement. And let's call it a day. All right, podcast family, we have summarized the summer 2023 ASRM and international update on PCOS with a focus on anti-malarian hormone. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.